0: 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're going to be beginning in verse 10. The title of the message is in closing part two. That's typical of Paul. That's typical of any preacher, right? When he says in closing, it's about an hour before he's done. So Paul today in these verses, basically, when we get to chapter 16, we're talking really practical stuff. It's stuff that you might tend to. Just kind of breeze through because it seems like Paul is just addressing specific people or issues in Corinth. But there's some really great practical stuff in here, I think. Today, Paul will teach us how, how to interact with each other in the ministry. Now, you guys do remember, you are ministers, right? Each one of you, if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you are a minister. You might not have the collar or the parking space at the hospital or depending on what kind of minister, the gold chain, the pompadour. But you are ministers. The, the sign that we have out front always says, you know, it hasn't changed, it's Ephesians 4:12, which our, our goal, the whole reason that we do what we do, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Again, it's not the, to equip the preacher for the work of the ministry, The deal is we come, we all learn, and we all become ministers. So, today we're going to learn from Paul some really practical stuff. We're going to learn about interacting with other ministers. We're going to learn about, we're going to see two ministers, high-profile ministers, by the way, work together without jealousy. We're going to learn what to do when our counsel, when we give good advice and it's declined. We're going to learn what to do in a leadership void And we're going to learn how to fall in love with serving Jesus. Pretty practical? I think so. Verse 1 through 4 we saw last time. Paul expected these guys, the Corinthians, to help out the church in Jerusalem. Verses 5 through 9 we saw last time also. Paul laid out his plans to visit Corinth. And basically he said, look, I can't come right now. I'm, I'm hoping to come at a later time. Paul is writing this, by the way, from Ephesus. So he couldn't visit Corinth just yet. So the first part he... Uh, said, look, you guys, you need to help out the church in Jerusalem. next part, he laid out his plans that it turns out didn't go as well as he thought. And then verses 10 through 12, now Paul hopes to send out. Paul hopes to send out reinforcements to this town of Corinth, this church at Corinth that really needs some leadership. Specifically, Paul's going to attempt, at least, to send Timothy and Apollos. First Paul says, I hope to send Timothy look at verse 10 and if Timothy comes see that he may be with you without fear for he does the work of the Lord as I also do therefore let no one despise him but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me for I am waiting for him with the brethren How many of you know Timothy was Paul's protege right his son in the faith Timothy probably came to uh, a saving knowledge of the Lord when he was a teenager and by this time No doubt he's somewhat older, but he's still got to be fairly young and definitely much younger than most of the people that he would be sent to minister to in Corinth. And as you look at the scriptures, it seems as though Timothy also had a tendency maybe to be timid, a bit soft-spoken, a little bit unsure of himself. Now think about that. Paul knew from experience, he knew Corinth, this church in Corinth, their reputation with preachers. This church chewed them up and spit them out. They, these guys were bad mouthing Paul. The Apostle Paul, and that was one of the reasons he's writing this letter. So imagine the day when the Apostle Paul turned to the young Timothy and said, Hey Tim, how would you like to go preach in Corinth? I mean, if they were bad-mouthing Paul, they would be, they would eat this kid for lunch. So verse 10. Is that speech that you've heard that a teacher gives his class when they're going on vacation? That the teacher gives and says, look, I'm going to be out tomorrow. I've got a substitute coming in. And you better behave, right? Some of you guys have given that speech. All of us have probably heard that speech. Verse 10 says, and if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him. The word despise there is exuthenial. I think it's like that. It means this, to make of no account, to ignore, to esteem less, to, in our language, to blow off what he's saying. It it means especially to look down on him. Paul says, let no one look down on him, but send him on his journey in peace. That word peace there is Irene. It's where we get the name Irene. It means a state of national tranquility. It's the exemption of the rage and havoc of war. Rage and havoc of war. That was a really good description of the church in Corinth. These guys fought about everything, right? They had their favorite teachers. They, they fought about the gifts of the Spirit. They fought over behavior at communion. Paul says to them, Look, you need to call a truce in your warring factions lest my boy get caught up in the crossfire. And again we see the heart of Paul. We saw this last, last uh, time on Father's Day. Paul has a father's heart here. He's looking out for his boy Timothy. He says. Let no one despise him. But send him on his journey in peace. That he may come to me. For I am waiting for him. With the brethren. Paul says look. I'll be waiting for him. And his report on how things went. Now like any church. We have some young men. And some older men. We have some young women and younger women. There are no older women here. What do you do when a younger person is sent to minister to people that are more experienced? Paul says you only have to answer one question. Verse 10. Is he doing the work of the Lord? If he's doing the work of the Lord, Paul says, let no one despise him. Let no one look down on him. Paul says, if they're doing the work of the Lord, don't look down on them. Don't say, oh, well, you just don't get it or you couldn't possibly get it because you're not experienced. Paul says, basically, the anointing, the appointing of the Lord is able to overcome a lack of experience. It did in David, a young shepherd boy. It did in Joseph the second youngest in his family. It did in the disciples. Fishermen that you would never pick to start a revolution. Right? These Matter of fact, in the book of Acts, they would say, well, these guys are unlearned fishermen. And then you see as you go through the, the next few verses, it's because they had been with Jesus. Paul says, look, this young man is doing the work of the Lord just like I am, so don't you dare look down your nose at him. If you are an older Gentlemen, or a young woman, how do, you, how do you interact with the young whippersnappers that you're supposed to minister alongside? Well, I would say, Paul would say, encourage them, get behind them, give them your counsel. Man, we need godly counsel from wise men and women. Titus 2, it's a great example of this. But those young men and women also need to hear things like this I'm with you, son. I'm behind you. Lord, I see. I see that the Lord has picked you, and that's good enough for me, and I will get behind you. Next. Next, we'll learn a few things from Paul's interaction with Apollos. Again, this is just really practical stuff when it comes to interacting with other ministers. You may remember Apollos was, well, he's definitely probably somewhere in age between Timothy and Paul. Apollos was a very, very gifted, eloquent speaker. Aquila and Priscilla, we're going to meet them later in this chapter. They saw this guy. He was really a great speaker, really gifted, but his gospel was incomplete. It says that the Bible says that he was teaching John's baptism, which leaves out things like, oh, Jesus, his death and resurrection. Aquila and Priscilla did exactly what we're talking about. They took him aside. Not, They didn't embarrass him. They took him aside and said, you know what? You're missing a few things here. And if you'll... If you'll listen to these things And put these things in your message Things will be a lot different And he he did exactly that He took their counsel He received Jesus As his Lord and Savior And then this guy took off I mean, he took off in an amazing way So much so that we saw in chapter 1 of this very book <laughs> That it caused a problem with these immature Corinthians Because Apollos walked into Corinth And everybody was blown away And they're like, who needs Paul? I mean, look I'm going to be the disciple of Apollos. I'm going to be the, apostle, the disciple of Paul. They had these factions going on. So there's this competition. By the way, it's not between Paul and Apollos, but in the minds of the Corinthians, there's a comp- competition. So Paul writes, verse 12, look at this. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos. Notice he didn't say my rival, Apollos. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. There's two two big things to notice right here about Paul's interaction with Apollos. Number one, no jealousy, no territorialism whatsoever. Look at verse 12 again. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. Now, if Paul was a jealous type, if he was the territorial type, if he were affected by this gossip, if he were a lesser man, he never would have urged Apollos to go to Corinth. Right? The reasoning would have been, look, if Apollos goes to Corinth, then they'll hear his gift of preaching and they'll be even more falling in love with him. Even more people might say, I'm of Apollos. That didn't even blip on Paul's radar. It didn't even occurred to him apparently what paul wanted was someone anyone to minister to the corinthians that he loved and if he could get someone as talented as gifted as apollos that's awesome paul wanted lives to be changed he wanted the gospel to be preached you guys have heard this phrase right there is no limit to what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit let me ask you do you have to get the credit See, Paul said earlier in this book, look, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Paul says, look, God is the one doing it. He's the one who gets the credit, not Apollos, not Paul, not me, not you. None of us deserve the credit. None of us should take the credit. And that is a wonderfully freeing thing when it comes to ministry. See, one of the things I'm encouraging every leader. I have a group of six guys right now. I'm encouraging the leaders of every ministry. And this this would be even if you're not on that leadership team. If you ha- if you are leading a ministry, I want to encourage you to raise up someone who can take your ministry. Someone who can do what you do. But you you know what the problem is with that. First thought, well, what if they do it better? Right? I mean, what if... They do it better and then take my ministry. Well, it requires that you give up the idea that the ministry is yours. I mean, what if I choose someone better than me who raises someone, if I choose someone who ends up doing it better than me? Well, the answer is praise God. God provides the increase. If you have been faithful, listen to this. If you've been faithful in raising that person up, Bible says if you've been faithful in the little things, he'll make you the rule over many things. If you've been faithful in raising that person up, no matter what your fears are, then God will give you even something more, and probably in personnel, right? Raising up people who can minister. Jealousy competition probably does more to kill ministry than anything else I can think of. People that would say, you know what, I would do this, but I don't have the, the title, or I don't have the... Um, The name that would go with it. I wish that we were like Paul. Let us be like Paul. Paul didn't even even blip on his radar. Paul doesn't care if Apollos gets the, the credit. And number two, here's another thing we learned from verse 12. Paul didn't lord his authority over Apollos. Again, if Paul was a lesser man, then verse 12 would read something like this. Now concerning our brother Apollos. I strongly urge him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has learned how to submit to my apostolic authority. The jerk. Doesn't read that way. Or he will he will come when he has recovered from my boot marks in his backside. Doesn't say that. It says, look. Look, I I strongly urge him to come to you guys. Because he's a great teacher, and you guys are in need of teaching. But he was quite unwilling. Now, we don't know why Apollos was quite unwilling. I have a few guesses. Don't know if they're true. I mean, he may have been like, Paul, look, I love you, but the church of Corinth, I'm not going back. They're a brood of vipers. Or he may have been, could have been even something like this. Look, Paul, every time I go back, they tell me how great I am and how lousy you are. I don't want to hear it. We don't know why Apollos Apollos didn't go back. Apollos didn't tell us why, and he may not have told Paul why. So Paul says, look, he'll come when he has convenient time. Maybe some of you remember the shepherding movement. It's goofy. It was a goofy thing that happened. It was basically you would be put under the authority of another Christian where you had to go to them to get permission to buy a car, to buy a house. Paul's here, the Apostle Paul gives his strongest advice, and it was not taken. Now, this wasn't a matter of sin, but a matter of conscience, right? And so Paul basically says, He says, Look, it's time to move on. Here's the application. Maybe you guys have someone you are ministering to. Maybe you've come to the place where you've given them your strongest advice, and they are quite unwilling to heed your words. Now, if they're not your kids, then there may become a time when you need to say, look, they're a big boy now. And they'll, they'll learn from this mistake. Now, I'm not suggesting that Apollos was making a mistake, but it seems as though Paul was really hoping that he would come to Corinth. The point is that Paul didn't try to play the Holy Spirit for Apollos. Now, again, understand if you're a parent, <laughs> that's your job for a while right? Don't abdicate your responsibility as a parent from this verse by any means. But Paul, dealing with another adult, Apollos, he said, look, I strongly urge you. Paul said, sorry, sorry, the Lord is not leading me that way. So we looked at verse 13 and 14 a bit last week, and those were good verses for Father's Day. Paul expects... In review here, Paul expects them to help out the, the church in Jerusalem. He uh, sends out, or tries to, send out workers from Ephesus to Corinth. And next, he calls out the men in Corinth. Paul has said, verses 5 through 9, basically, look, I can't come to see you. And then he says, well, you know what, maybe Timothy can come to see you, but I don't know. And then he says, look, Apollos has already said he's not coming to see you. It's definitely looking like it's going to be some time before reinforcements Arrive in Corinth. So here we learn another practical thing. What to do when there's a leadership void? What to do when there seems to be a vacuum in leadership? Look at verse 13. He says, You guys, watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. The old King James puts it the best. It says, Quit ye like men. Now, if you don't understand, it sounds like it means. Quit like a man. No, the the phrase means stand up and be a man. Be brave, be watchful, hold down the fort, stand fast. Paul says, look, I can't make it. Timothy, I don't know if he can make it. Apollo said he won't come. So you men of Corinth, watch, stand fast, be brave, be strong. When there's a leadership void, what do you do? You watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Basically, you could say you step up without stepping out of bounds. You step up without stepping on toes. Is there a leadership void in your family? There might be some here today that would say, yeah. Unfortunately, a, a indication of our society today is that there are many families without leadership. Because the men haven't stepped up. If there's a leadership voiding your family, what do you do? Watch stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. You step up without stepping out of bounds. Again, I'm not saying that a woman should take the, the, the full leadership role and say, look, this is the way we're going to do it, because the Bible is very clear that um, a, a believing wife can win her husband over by the way that she submits to him. This is saying, though, to step up without stepping out of bounds. Is there a leadership void at your work? Well, verse 13 would say, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Step up without stepping on toes. You know, you can lead by example without uh, commandeering the whole workforce there. Is there a leadership void in our country? Many would say yes. What do you do? Verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. I have no doubt Paul had this talk with Timothy before sending him into this brood of vipers. Look, watch, stand fast, be brave, be strong. Do what you can, but remember, verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. See, that's where the part is about, comes in on not stepping on toes on purpose, right? Or stepping out of bounds. Let all that you do be done with love. This is not... We talked about this last time. This is not wishy-washy, mamby-pamby kind of love. This is fatherly, godly kind of love. This is agape love that lays down its life to rescue another. You guys ready for a review? Verse 1 through 4, Paul expected the church to help out the, the saints in Jerusalem. Verses five through nine, <clears throat> Paul laid out his plans to visit Corinth. Verses ten through twelve. Paul hoped to send out reinforcements to Corinth. Verses 13 through 14, Paul called out the men of Corinth, said, be men. Now, verses 15 through 18, Paul points out the faithful workers that are already in their midst. Verse 15, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that it's the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such And to everyone who works and labors with us. Paul points out this household, the whole family of Stephanus, and says, look, in reality, there is no leadership void. He says there is no leadership vacuum there in Corinth. He says, no, you have the household of Stephanus living among you. He calls him the first fruits in the area. We've talked about this recently a few times. The first fruit is just basically the first thing that pops out of the ground in a harvest. So Paul is saying Stephanus was among the very first people that were converted there in your area. He says they've devoted themselves to serving you all. Now, maybe these guys didn't have the title of apostle or evangelist. But Paul says, look, right there in your midst, those are your leaders. Paul says, look, in reality, you don't have a leadership void. You have a fellowship. Void it says you have a submission void. Verse 15, if I take out the parentheses to 16, reads this way: "I urge you, brethren, submit to stephanus and everyone who works hard. Verse 15 says that they have devoted themselves. Does anybody have an old king James here today? Old King James? Noah.. Oh. Does your say something about being addicted? I hope it does. Verse 15, if my understanding is the old King James says that they are addicted to the ministry of the saints, that they are hooked on serving the people that God loves. Do you hear that? Paul says, I urge you, these people that are addicted to ministry. Submit to them, get behind them. See, they're addicted to ministry. They are hooked on serving the people that God loves. Let me tell you, that's a happy Addiction. Parents, sooner or later, your kids will become addicted to something. You probably could already name some of the things they're addicted to. Given his choice, my son, two, two and a half, not even three years old, he's addicted. He is addicted to tr- toy train videos. If he was given the choice, he would watch them day and night. This is crazy. There are like eight installments of this toy train video. He's so addicted, so particular, he'll be like, no, Daddy, Toy Train's number four. (laughs) So we're like, okay, it's time to put that thing away. Sooner or later, your kids will be addicted to something. Just this week, I don't have time to read the whole article, but it came out, Video games overuse may be an addiction, say the experts. Uh, This was June 22nd. Millions of U.S. children and adults obsessed with video games may suffer from a real addiction, according to a proposal up for debate by top U.S. doctors. There's all sorts of information in here. Um, This is probably uh, one of the more interesting things. Statistics released in 2005 by the Entertainment Software Association and Industry Group estimated that 70% to 90% of American children play video games, and the typical gamer is a 30-year-old male who spends about seven or eight hours a week gaming. The the ESA survey also found that video game overuse was most prevalent among the approximately 9% of video game users who play against others online in Internet-based massive multiplayer online role-playing games. Um, It says this concern came up because of one of our psychiatrists here in Maryland was seeing older people who were losing their social contacts, specifically because of their overuse of video games. It was ruining their life. So it was not like... Unlike uh, gambling addictions or alcohol, where it was having a profound impact on the lives of the individuals. Um, your kids will be addicted to something. They will be addicted to something. Now, we hope, we hope it will be banned. Or soccer. Or art. Or drama or something like that. Football. Lisa's like, Football. But above all, what's this, the very best thing you could be addicted to? The ministry. Addicted to helping the people that God loves. He calls them his saints. It means set apart. Helping the people that God loves. I think of the time that we, we went to the nursing facility. And I heard reports of the kids blessing so many. This is, this is a great application, you guys. Have your kids be addicted to ministry. Some of the kids, they just crawl up in the laps of the old folks there, and they were blessed beyond measure. And there were some great discussions between kids and their parents after that. This reminds me of of this thing that we have coming up on the 4th of July. I'll get to that in a second, but I'm blessed to see kids helping set up and tear down here in the church. We have some good examples of kids that are beginning to get a taste of this addiction for ministry. Fourth of July, this could be a really cool thing. Again, it's so easy. We have a, a kind of a vision of um, kids with, with a chaperone maybe going, well, not maybe, definitely, um, going and handing out uh, little piece of paper that says, did you know that this is available, this uh, baby changing room for you? Um, there's all sorts of ways that we can have our kids hooked on ministry. And this has been a recurring theme, by the way, as we've gone through this book. Do you come to church only to get your fix of the truth? That's not a bad reason to come to church. But do you only come for that reason? Or do you also come to get your fix of ministry? In other words, your ministry to other people. (laughs) Let me put it this way. You can catch a buzz before you leave here. Now, you don't say that very often in church. (laughs) But you can catch a buzz before you leave here just by tracking someone down and saying, how can I pray for you? And then praying with them right there. I promise you, I get to do it every week. It's it's a joy. It's a wonderful addiction. And here's another way to make a life of ministry really joyous. Look at verse 15. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, you know, the household of Stephanas, that it is the first fruits of a And that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They're addicted to the ministry of the saints that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Now, we read that word submit. And without a lot of explanation, it doesn't it's not an appealing word to us because we think it means basically do what they say. But let me tell you, that word is much, much cooler than that. The word is "hupataso." It means to arrange under, to place oneself under. This was a word that, in the Greek military, it meant to arrange in a military fashion uh, under the command of a leader. But listen to this: in non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, of giving in. Excuse me, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility, of helping to carry a burden. So the phrase, again, that we would use is Paul saying, look, if you find somebody who's working hard, get put yourself underneath them. Place yourself underneath them and ask how you can help. If every church was filled with people who really got this, the churches would completely change the landscape of America. Here's another application for you. Today is like we're filled with applications. Find someone who is addicted to... To the ministry. And place yourself under them. Get behind them. Ask them how you can help. Follow them. Support them. And what will happen is soon you'll find yourself addicted in a joyous way to the ministry. And then soon you'll find yourself qualified to lead others. And then if people were to do this, people would come to you and say, wow, how is it that you're so happy? Can I help you? Now, kind of an odd illustration. I was flying back from California, Pastors Conference, on the the TV, on the uh, airplane. I saw a show about Simon Cowell. Okay, some of you guys already know who he is. Simon Cowell, he's the, the, the mean judge on American Idol. Probably most of you guys know who he is. Now, he's not the nicest guy, but no one disputes that he's successful. When you hear his story, it's basically the same story that you used to hear all the time about record executives. A guy who loves music, but doesn't know anything about it. He decides he's going to take a job delivering mail at the record company. And he pays attention and he asks a lot of questions and he takes every job available and he soaks it all up. And years later, he's running multiple TV shows, billionaire, yada, yada. You know the story. There's probably not a lot of things you can learn in church from Simon Cowell. But this is one. If you really want to succeed, find somebody who's doing well, who's working hard and go to them and say, can I help you? Can I learn from you? Get behind them and support them and learn. Now, Simon Cowell's houses, his cars, his money, all of it will burn someday. Right. The Bible says that the earth will melt with fervent heat. Everything that he has is going to burn someday. But listen, if you will apply the exact same principle in ministry, you are investing in something that the Bible says moth cannot eat, rust cannot destroy, and thieves cannot break in and steal. That's pretty cool. That's a wonderful way to invest. Look at verse 17 now. He says, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Same guy here. And then his buddies, Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, Achaicus excuse me, For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. These three guys probably had come to Paul in Ephesus to bring to his attention many of these issues. We know that Chloe also sent word that there were problems in Corinth. These were probably the ambassadors that went, look, somebody's got to go talk to Paul, so we'll do it. Stephanus Fortunatus. um, Fortunatus obviously means fortunate, right? And Achaicus, that means basically that he's from Achaiae. Um, the province to which Corinth was situated. That's like somebody who lived in Orlando being called Orlando. So here, here go on, on their trip, Steve, Archie, and Lucky. <laughs> the, kind of an aside. It reminds me of that classified ad. Some of you have heard it. It says, lost dog, one missing leg, one missing eye, burnt fur, answers to the name of Lucky. I always like that. Anyway, so this, um, look at the word supplied there. It says, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied. What it means literally is to fill up a ditch. You guys ever been in a conversation and you keep digging yourself further and further in a hole? Some of these Corinthians had spent years doing that with Paul. Paul says, look, I'm really glad these guys showed up. By their kindness, they have filled up the ditch that you have dug between you and me. Now, how did they do that? Verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Word word refreshed there means to allow to recover, to cease from hard labor, to collect one's strength. That word, it, basically, it's a glass of lemonade after pulling weeds on a hot day. That's, that's the kind of thing where, where you finish the glass and now you go. Now I can keep going. It gives you that second wind. Do you guys know people like that? That they refresh you, they recharge you, they rejuvenate you. Paul says, acknowledge such men. There's another application. If you know someone that does that, let them know. Acknowledge such men. Send out an email today. Or better yet, in person, tell that person, you refresh my soul and I appreciate it. Or better yet, you become the refresher today. You guys heard that again, right? Everyone's a blessing, a refreshing, some when they enter, some when they leave. We should commit to being the first, the kind who bless when they enter. Look at verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Now, this is a great couple. We don't have time to follow all the places that we find them in the New Testament, but they pop up several times in the New Testament. Aquila and Priscilla, they are that kind of beautiful, godly couple that just oozes hospitality. And, and they are always working together. I mean, even their names rhyme. Isn't that cute? Aquila and Priscilla. Probably have matching shirts. Now, my guess is that these are fun-loving guys. Aquila means eagle. And Priscilla means ancient. What kind of parent names their daughter Ancient. But Aquila probably had fun with that. He's like, hi, my name means eagle, and this is my wife. She's ancient. And she probably teased him, yeah, but he's a bald eagle. Okay, anyway, that's presumption. (laughs) Anyway, they greet you heartily in the Lord, and everyone, everybody in their fellowship, their home fellowship, says hi. Basically, this is just a shout-out from one more couple that's addicted to ministry. Joyous servants of Jesus. He continues on verse 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Basically, again, a shout out from the church in Ephesus. Everybody says hi. Give everyone a holy kiss for us, right? We do that on the phone. Hey, give so-and-so a kiss for us. Back then, and still in some cultures, men would kiss on both cheeks. I have a friend that I work with. His name is Sammy. He used to tour with an evangelist. Uh, who would uh, tour in Poland and Russia. He says there would be nights when the preacher. At, would be standing at the back of the room after preaching. And his face would be red. From a thousand kisses on the cheeks from, from guys with beards. Um, people showing affection and gratitude for the teaching of the word. Now today a handshake in our society a handshake works. right? Or the the manly hug, the shoulder squeeze, all that stuff. Now men... Let me say, with the ladies, an A-frame hug will do just fine. Or a side hug, because it says, greet one another with a holy kiss, a holy greeting. I I hesitate to, I wish I didn't have to say this, but I think it's wise to, is the affection that you are showing, holy. Holy. I mean, is the affection that you are showing um, in church, particularly, to bless that other person, or is it for your own, not so holy purposes? If if I'm speaking to you, you know the difference, and she does too. Don't don't make me have to spell it out for anybody, right? There is a holy display of affection, but if it is holy, it's a wonderful thing. Let me put it this way: I feel like church should always be a homecoming. If we truly are all ministers, this should be like soldiers who come in from the battlefield. We've all had different assignments. And it's like, wow, how's it going? Man, I missed you. How can I pray for you? How would it go for you this week? Now, verses 21 to 23, Paul closes out the letter in his own hand. It says, verse 21, this salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Verse 21, he says, The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Now back then, you guys know, some of you, they would have a secretary. The, the name was um, Amenuensis. Basically, it was someone who would dictate the letter. Paul would say, look, can you take this letter for me? And then at the end, the person would sign it. So Paul's saying, from this point on, this is all my own handwriting. This is like husbands with Christmas cards. Birthday gifts, stuff like that. But it would be really obvious when Paul started writing. We learned this in Galatians. It would have been a big, old, sloppy scrawl of handwriting because most commentators think that he was blind or going blind because of all the injuries that he'd sustained in the name of Jesus. In Galatians, he actually says right at this same spot in the letter, he's like, wow, look how big these letters are. Now, if you ever find a parchment that says to the Corinthians at the beginning and at the end there's big sloppy handwriting, call me right away. No matter where you are, I'll split the proceeds with you. This would be the most amazing find, right? So, so think about this. What follows now in verses 22 to the end is what Paul thought was the most important thing. He's like, okay, now I'm writing in my own hand. What, what does it really come down to? What should I write? Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. Now, that word accursed, it's a really harsh word. It's the word anathema. It means to be cursed without any hope of being redeemed. Okay, so Paul could write anything in his big old sloppy handwriting, and he chooses this Well, that's cheery, Paul. But listen, Paul is not pronouncing a curse so much as he's providing an escape. He doesn't delight in this curse. He's declaring the facts. This is a fact. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, this side of eternity, then when you enter into eternity, you will be anathema. You'll have no chance of redemption. The good news is if you're here today and you're still living and breathing. You still have hope. It's interesting because the next word there where it says, oh, Lord, come in the Greek, that's Maranatha. That's a greeting that they gave to each other all the time. It was basically like Aloha. Uh, it's actually, you know how goodbye if you condense it, it was basically uh, God be with you. Right. This was the same kind of thing. Maranatha means Lord come or the Lord is coming. It was a greeting that Christians gave to one another. So here you have, in juxtaposition, anathema, maranatha. I mean, that's pretty much the gospel condensed into two words. It's either anathema, no hope of redemption, or maranatha, which is, Lord, come quickly. Lord, rescue us from this world of death, disease, murder, contempt. Lord, let the trumpet blow. Let the angels shout. Lord, come and meet us in the air. Anathema or Maranatha. And the key is found again in verse 22. Do you love Jesus? Everybody in this room, I can tell you with authority, he loves you. But do you love him? He died for you. The question is, will you surrender for him? It's truly a life and death matter. It's anathema or Maranatha. He's either your coming destruction or he's your coming salvation. He's either your redeemer or your judge. And the best thing is that he wants to be your friend, your king. All you have to do is surrender. That's what Paul thought was most important to write in his own hand.